Frank Ling. And hey, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. Coming up on today's program, retired Colonel Alfred Ward will talk about Apollo 15. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the Apollo missions remain a landmark in the history of the U.S. space program, and none of the missions has perhaps been as successful scientifically as Apollo 15. But the great successes of that mission were somewhat clouded over by what occurred after the mission. Perhaps no one can tell the story of that chapter in history better than our next guest, retired Colonel Alfred Warden. Colonel Warden was the pilot of the command module for Apollo 15 and conducted the first spacewalk in deep space. He has chronicled his uh, explorations in the new book, Falling to Earth, an Apollo 15 astronaut's journey to the moon. And uh, Colonel Warden, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Oh, it's my pleasure, Charles. Glad to be here. And it's kind of really hard to know where to start since there's really so much in the book. But maybe... yeah. yeah, well, it covers a lot of ground. <laughs> maybe the best place to start is, is at the beginning. How did you become interested in space and in the space program? Well, to be honest with you, my interest in the space program was not very high. I was, of course, went to West Point, went in the Air Force as a fighter pilot, went back to college and went to test pilot school. And I was an instructor at the test pilot school at Edwards when NASA had a request for applicants for the Apollo program. I put my application in. Now, I have to tell you that I did not consider that they would have a selection program while I was still eligible because the age limit was 35, and I was kind of getting there, uh, you know, soon. But they had a request, and I put my application in, and it was kind of interesting back in those days. The Air Force was trying to do a manned orbiting lab program, and when NASA had their request for applicants, the Air Force decided they needed to get some applications out, too, so it was kind of a twofold program. You could apply to either the Air Force or NASA or both. And I decided at the time that I did not think the Air Force would ever get a program off the ground. So I applied to NASA only, and luckily enough, uh, I was able to get in. There were about 830 in my selection group, and they ended up selecting 19 of us. I guess what I have to say is, I did not grow up as a small boy looking at the sky and saying, gee, I want to go into space someday, because I'm a little bit more practical than that. And so what I did was focus on the career path that I was on, which was Air Force, flight test work, and on from there. What I found is if you've got the flying, you've got the test pilot experience, you've got the academic background behind you, then other doors open, and that door opened for me uh, to go to NASA. So in a way, you were positioned for the opportunity when it arose. Yeah, I I had what we call filling squares, I guess, but I had lots and lots of the background requirements that they wanted to get into the space program. So I was ready when, surprising me, they had a request for applicants while I still had time, and I very gleefully put my application in, and uh, luckily enough, I got selected. And so what was the early days of of NASA like in terms of the the training and the people who were in, in the program at the time? Well, when I got to Houston, there were like 35 of us in the astronaut office. 
still a couple of the Mercury 7 guys. Gordon Cooper was there, Wally Shira. In fact, my first boss was Wally Shira, one of the original seven. And Al Shepard was still there. And then there was another group after that and a group after that. And I ended up in the fifth group. So when I got to Houston, we immediately went into a long classroom training program to learn all of the Apollo systems and space mechanics and that kind of thing. And so when you, when you make a big step like that, you end up being at the bottom of the ladder and you got to prove yourself. And the proof is in making a flight. The guys in the program before me, had, you know, most of them had made a flight and they didn't consider us astronauts until we had actually gone into space. So, so it was a thing like, it's like anything. You, you, you start at the bottom. When you go to college, you start at the bottom and you end up as a senior and you graduate. Going in the space program was the same thing. I got there and, and I, I'll, I'll never forget. My first meeting with Wally Shira, where I kind of ended up going to get him a cup of coffee, and that kind of showed me my status in the office at the time, and I had to work my way up. But it's very tough work, long hours. You have to be very dedicated to get all the things you need to make a space flight. From a cup of coffee all the way to the moon, then. Well, I, I, I have to tell you the rest of the story. When I first got to Houston and, and checked into the astronaut office, they assigned me to Wally Shira's flight. And my very first meeting with him, I walked into his office and said, Captain Shira, I see you're a captain in the Navy, and I'm a captain in the Air Force, so I guess we're the same rank. And that's when I went to get him a cup of coffee. I, I, I could have swept his office, too, for all I know. Well, I'm sure he's very appreciative of the, of the coffee anyway. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you, Wally Shira and I, Wally Shira and I became the best of friends and had, were, were very close friends right up until the time he passed away. Um, so, so what was the, the training like to be prepared to go to the moon? Well, you have to learn the equipment and you have to learn all the procedures from mission control. We spent an awful lot of time in the classroom learning the systems and, and kind of learning trajectory analysis, that kind of thing, which I'd already had in college. But then we spent hours and hours and days in simulators going over every aspect of the flight and the kinds of maneuvers we'd have to make and what we had to do. And then we ended up doing simulations with mission control where we would actually fly a complete segment of the flight from the simulator. And the simulators, i got to say, were extraordinary. They were just like being in flight, as I found later, uh, except that uh, nothing moved. But there was all the sound and, and the visuals were all there and everything was there except, uh, except the motion. And that's how we trained. How were the mission groups chosen? Well, I'm not really sure uh, exactly, except that I, uh, one little piece of information that I found out. When we finished our basic classroom training, the group of 19 that I went in with, at the end of all that training, we were asked to grade everybody else in the group. So I had to grade everybody in my group from 1 through 18, and I believe that that, that list was all put together by Deke Slayton, who was our boss at the time. And somebody came out number one out of the group, and then number two and number three, and right on down the list. And I believe that most of the crew assignments were based on where you stood in your group. So actually, I was one of the first ones to get selected. Uh, I was asked to be on the support crew for Apollo 9, or, well, actually, it was Apollo 8 originally. But the lunar module wasn't ready in time, so they shipped, they slipped that to Apollo 9. And Apollo 8 then made that solo trip around the moon, as everybody knows. But that slipped me back in the schedule a little bit. And from 9, I ended up on the, on, on the backup crew for Apollo 12 and then was picked as a command module pilot of Apollo 15. 
And that's how you work up in the program. You become support crew, which means you do kind of all of the drudgery work for the prime crew, and then you become a backup crew, and you train on their flight extensively for a year and a half. And then once you've gone through that, you get selected to a prime crew, and now you've got a year and a half to train for your own flight. And what we did basically was we were pretty confident of our ability to fly the mission, so we focused a lot of our attention on the science that we're going to do once we got there. And I think that's what made our flight so so successful. Is it somewhat different being back up for a mission as opposed to being you know the next up in terms of mentally preparing for it? Uh, I don't think so. I, I, I learned so much as a backup. I spent much of my time with Dick Gordon, who was a command module pilot on Apollo 12, and he was a great teacher. I learned a lot from Dick, and I'm grateful that I had that time as a backup pilot to learn everything that I would need to know when I made my own flight. As you know, on Apollo 13, Ken Manningly was dropped from the flight a couple of days before the flight, and Jack Swigert took his place on the flight. Well, Jack had trained as a backup pilot for uh, Apollo 13, and uh, he ended up going on the flight. So that, that training as a backup crewman is crucial to uh, being able to make a safe flight. When Apollo 13 came around, how did that really affect the mood at the time at NASA? Well, most of us were test pilots, and after there's been an accident or a problem with an airplane, you kind of regroup and say, hey, what went wrong, and let's fix it, and let's go on. So most of us were oriented towards the problem and fixing it and making everything good. And in my opinion, basically, the flight after an accident is probably the safest one because everybody's looking at it very, very carefully, looking at all the systems, uh, all the hardware, all the software, uh, all the communications. Uh, you look at that stuff very carefully because you don't want to repeat what happened before. So Apollo 14 was very few problems on Apollo 14, and Apollo 15, of course, came along, and, and we were, we'd had enough experience under our belt by then that Apollo 15 became a, a, a super Apollo flight, if you will. Uh, we carried a lot more equipment. We carried the lunar rover. We carried a scientific instrument module into lunar orbit, and all of that stuff added up to a very heavy launch vehicle. Uh, we're, we, I think we still hold the record for launching the greatest mass into lunar orbit of any of the flights. So we had a whole new series of things to learn and to deal with on our flight that they hadn't had before, but we were ready for it, and I think thanks in part to all the backup training we'd had on Apollo 12. We didn't miss a thing on the flight. We packed our flight plan with uh, scientific objectives, things that principal investigators wanted to look and have us monitor during the flight. We put all those in the flight plan, and we did every single one of them. Uh, we didn't miss a thing. Sometimes that meant that we didn't get as much sleep as we wanted or could use, but our attitude was, we're only going to be here once. We're going to do everything we can. We can always catch up on sleep later. So we did everything that was in our flight plan, and I think we did them quite well. The Guinness Book of World Records apparently has you listed as being the most isolated human being for your time alone on Endeavor. I'm wondering, what was that experience like? Well, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure that that's, that's, that's an all-time record. I, there might be some other guys that were in a, you know, about the same distance. However, I have to say it was the best time of flight. I was there by myself in lunar orbit for three days. I was busy 20 hours a day doing, doing the science, remotely sensing the lunar surface with a complete array of remote sensing devices like X-ray, gamma ray, microwave, and all that kind of stuff. 
And I also had two large cameras. One was a high-resolution camera that I used to map and photograph about 25% of the lunar surface. So I was pretty busy. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I had been pretty much cooped up with uh, two guys for four and a half days in a spacecraft that was about the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. So when they went down to the lunar surface, I was very, very happy to get rid of them for a while and have that, have that space all to myself, three whole days. First uh, deep space uh, walk right. that I performed, yeah. Right, and that was uh, to collect the film canisters from the large cameras I had outside and bring them back into the command module so that we could get them back through the atmosphere and, re and, and, and save them. And so what is it like being out in space and just being able to look around and survey both the Earth and the Moon? Well, it's kind of a weird place to be, but you don't think about it when you're doing it because you've uh, gone through it so many times in training that it's kind of like doing it all over again in training. But it was kind of a strange place to be. I could stand up on the outside of the service module and see both the Earth and the Moon you know, pretty much at the same time, and that's kind of a unique vantage point. Uh, it was a very quick extravehicular activity because I had trained so well on it that I really did it faster than we had planned for. And then I didn't have a good excuse to stay out there, so 38 minutes it was all over. So post-mission, there was a bit of uh, controversy, and, and the book really kind of goes into trying to set the record straight. I'm wondering if maybe you can uh, talk a little bit about what the controversy was and, and really what, what happened. Well, the controversy was about postal commemorative covers that we'd carried on the flight. We had carried some postal covers for a German stamp dealer. Uh, he was uh, to retain them for a number of years before he sold them. You know, a percentage of the proceeds, of course, was to go to our children's education. You have to understand that we were all Air Force officers at the time, and I was making like $800 a month. The prospect of putting a few dollars aside for my kids' education was was good. We were kind of talked into it by a gentleman at the Cape who was a contractor. Uh, we went to his house for dinner one night, and he and Dave Scott talked Jim and I into going for this program based on the fact that most flights before ours had done the same thing, which Jim and I assumed was the truth. And so we agreed to carry the covers, and uh, Dave carried them. He arranged with the, with the Germans uh, to get the covers back, and he also had 300 more covers printed up that he carried on the flight that we signed and, and, and divided after we got off the flight. Uh, those covers were never uh, listed on a manifest anywhere, and I think that became that, that was a big part of the problem, is that there were unauthorized covers. Because events like this had occurred on previous flights, as an example, on Apollo 14, if you remember, Al Shepard hit a golf ball on the moon. A month after the flight, there were golf balls being sold all over the country with a lunar logo on them. And the assumption was that there had been a deal made between Shepard and, and the golf ball company. Uh, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but he disowned the whole thing, and it, and it came to nothing. But, the, but it kind of opened the door for uh, events like that. Uh, when, our, when our postal cover issue came up the following year on our flight, I think uh, NASA and the Senate Space Committee decided that it was time to make an example of a crew. And uh, that's what happened to us. I think we were made an example because um, it, it had happened before, and they wanted to they wanted to make sure that we were punished enough so that nobody else would do it. But that, you know, the, the 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 fact of the matter is, and as you read the book, you'll 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 discover this, 
is that NASA and uh, and the government made a worse mistake, a bad mistake, uh, about the covers because what happened is they asked us to turn the covers that we had voluntarily into NASA while they did the investigation and with the understanding that we'd get them back uh, when the investigation was over. Well, what they did is they placed all those postal covers in the National Archives uh, with no way to get them out. Um, they were locked up forever, and uh, that was a violation of our constitutional rights. They never went through due process to get the covers. They never went to a judge. They never went to a court. Uh, they never got a search warrant. Um, we voluntarily turned them in, and then they turned the whole thing around and said, oh, well, we confiscated all those covers. Well, they didn't. We turned them in voluntarily. And then they locked them up forever, and that was the basis of my lawsuit back in the 1980s. And I said, hey, you guys, right or wrong or whatever, you violated my constitutional rights, and I want my property back. And when the Department of Justice got into the act on this whole thing, they realized the same thing, that we'd done nothing wrong. It might have been not, a, not the best judgment call in the world, but we had done nothing wrong. And it was very clear that the government had violated our rights. And as a result of all that, I got all the covers back for not only my flight, but for Apollo 16 and 17 as well. Did NASA ever uh, issue any kind of a, um, a couple or apology about this? Are you kidding? <laughs> mm, that would be the day. No, we signed, I signed a piece of paper that uh, there was no harm done on either side and just let the whole thing go. So NASA management got off this thing absolutely clean. It's a shame and uh, really, uh, really not the right end, I guess, to, to really what was a great mission, Apollo 15 there. So since that time, uh, you've, you've had a number of uh, other roles. Uh, how, how is your post-NASA career like? Well, I tell you what, being a NASA astronaut and making a space flight is a great thing to do. But it's like flying an airplane. It's like driving a car. It's like riding a bicycle. It's a skill that you learn, and it's a great thing to do. But the, the intellectual component of that uh, is not as great as some other things that you might do. So I elected when I retired to not go to work for a big corporation because I figured the bureaucracy would be the same there pretty much as it was in the government. So I elected to go off and do my own thing. I ended up forming a research company with a, with a gentleman from Canada, and we invented a, a stall warning system for aircraft that was very different from anything else. And that's the kind of intellectual pursuit that I really enjoy, is inventing something new, discussing ideas and things that, where, where do we come from, where are we going, what's the space program all about, what's good with the country, what's good for the country. I enjoy the intellectual pursuit as much as I do learning the skills to, look to, you know, to fly a spacecraft. So I've pretty much uh, oriented myself towards mental uh, exercises and pursuing those kinds of things, and, and I found them just as exciting and as demanding as uh, going on a space flight. I ran for Congress uh, because uh, I, I, I finally got to a point where I said, you know, if you're going to complain about something, you, you ought to do something about it. So I ran for Congress. I didn't win, but it was a very exciting and, and fulfilling thing to do to discuss all these issues with the people who are going to vote and try and figure out what's best for the country. So I did that, and then I, then I did the research on this stall warning system, and as a result of that, we sold the license to a company called B.F. Goodrich back in those days. It's now the Goodrich Corporation, but back then it was B.F. Goodrich, and they used to make tires, but by the time I was involved with them, they were strictly into aerospace uh, equipment 
and they actually hired me in to run the company that was going to develop the stall warning system. So that's, I, I eventually got back into a big corporation that way. Curious, how do you feel about where NASA is at now? So the shuttle program has now ended, and there's now a greater um, role for private enterprise in space. How do you feel that uh, exploration in space is now changing? Well, I think it's a disaster. Uh, I think we totally lack leadership in Washington to do the right thing. They can talk all they want about how much money it takes to uh, go into space, but you know when you realize that the budget for the space program is less than 0.4 percent of the national budget, you begin to wonder, you know, what they're really thinking about up there. In my mind, uh, the money spent on the space program goes to develop technologies and equipment here on Earth. It doesn't get spent in space. So I, I see the space program as a great, great. Uh, motivator for new technology, and I think the I, I think the most important thing of all is that the space program for 40 years was every kid's dream. That was the thing that motivated kids to go to school to get good grades, because they had this thought that when they got out of school they could work in the space program somewhere. And we've lost that now uh, with this lack of leadership in Washington. That's one of the things that's gone by the wayside. Uh, and that's something you can't put a dollar sign on, but I guarantee you that when that motivation goes away for school kids, this country is going to get is going to fall further and further behind because we're not going to be graduating the kids that are really dedicated to it. It's very short-sighted on their part in, in many well, ways. It is. It's very short-sighted. And as a matter of fact, after I retired from BF Goodrich, I got involved with the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation uh, because we give out scholarships to the brightest kids out there, we give out 25 scholarships per year at 10000 each to the brightest kids in science, technology, engineering, and math in, uh, selected in 25 different schools around the country. And we do that because we are hopeful that these kids are the ones that will make a difference. We're not trying to get the masses of kids through college. We're trying to promote those who have the possibility of making a change in the future. And I, and I think so far we've been pretty successful at that. And it's certainly going to take efforts like that to encourage uh, the next generation of scientists, engineers, and astronauts. Yeah, well, we, we need to do that. We need, we need to provide some motivation uh, for kids to do well in school and to take the, uh, the STEM courses and, uh, and, and, and become meaningful and productive members of a society that's developing new technologies and new equipment all the time. In terms of the future of, of spaceflight, what, what do you really think about the U.S.'s role? I mean, it's clearly now become more of an international endeavor. Where, where do you think the U.S. will stand for the exploration well, of space? I, I, I think the U.S. place in the space program is much worse than just an international endeavor. I think uh, I've always had the attitude that if you're willing to be number two, then you're also willing to be number five. And that's kind of where the U.S. is going. I think we're going to see... Several other countries, the Chinese, the Indians, maybe the Japanese, uh, getting ahead of us in space, developing the kinds of technologies that we developed for the Apollo program and for the shuttle program. And I think that's a disaster for this country, that we're going to let those people get, uh, get around us. Uh, I think we're in a quiet period right now. I don't believe in the private enterprise part of what, the, what, what, what our president is promoting these days. I think that that's a very dangerous thing to do. I don't think uh, a private company is going to do the things that are necessary because they have a profit motive 
that they work to, and the U.S. government doesn't have that. And I think that the long-term space exploration stuff and the development of equipment to get us out there and get us back uh, is, a, is a government responsibility and not just some space hack who's building a launch vehicle that, that maybe can take astronauts to the International Space Station. I, I'm just not a fan of that. It's certainly a refreshing point of view and uh, certainly a straight shooting point of view, and we certainly appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, the new book that you've written is called uh, Falling to Earth, an Apollo 15 Astronaut's Journey to the Moon. And uh, Colonel yeah. Warden, I want to thank you very much for joining us on the Grok Science Show. Well, it's my pleasure to be here, and you can let everybody know that the book is available, and I will be doing book signings around the country. So everybody, come on out. Of course, uh, hopefully meet you. You uh, bet. Okay, uh, if you do have a few seconds, though, we would quickly like to play the, our game, the Grokatron 5000. Oh, sure, okay. sure, go ahead. <laughs> All right, it's time to play the game, the Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, are they bound for space or are they stuck on Earth? So for the falling five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 will let you know if you think they're uh, space material or if they're just going to be stuck on Earth and a little reason why. Colonel Warden, ready to play the game? Sure. All right, here we go. Person number one, space-bound or stuck on Earth, it's the actor Charlie Sheen. <laughs> I think Charlie Sheen's already in space. But my honest opinion is he's done so many things wrong that he's stuck here on Earth. He's at least entertaining for his antics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, uh, number two, golfer Tiger Woods. Tiger Woods, probably, uh, I'll, I, I'm going to say space-bound. Um, I think Tiger's uh, been through a lot. I think he's the kind of person with a dedication and a temperament. Uh, he'd make a good spaceman. Uh, well, how about number three? Uh, it's the uh, Apple CEO, Steve Jobs. Uh, Steve Jobs has probably been there more times than I have. Uh, I think he's, <laughs> he, he is a genius uh, at doing the technology thing. Uh, I would dearly love to see Steve as part of a team to design, develop, and, and fly a spacecraft to Mars, and I think he should go to. All right. Uh, number four, it's uh, the talk show host, Oprah Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey. I don't know. She's, she's stuck here. <laughs> uh, she, she's too much into all the people around her, and I, uh, I, I, I think it would be a... a, a, a not a good thing for her to go into space where she'd be isolated. <laughs> okay. All right, and finally, number five, uh, stuck on Earth or space-bound, it's Speaker of the House, John Boehner. Uh, John Boehner needs to stay on Earth. He needs to get his act and uh, Congress straightened out in Washington uh, and do something good for the American people, and uh, I think he's stuck here. Hopefully they can get uh, agreeing on something. Yeah, something. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Colonel Warden, I want to thank you very much for sticking around playing the game. Thank you much. Bye. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.